0: Well, good morning everybody man it is wonderful to see you here today at the vista if we haven't met before my name's austin i get to serve here as one of our pastors and if it's your first time here we're really glad to have you we hope that you feel loved welcome and wanted that you fit right in and make yourself at home here at the vista uh, before we jump in one little bitty bit uh, of housekeeping and uh it's a good problem that we're having but it, it's a problem where we are once again needing to maximize our seating capacity in the auditorium. And so in order to do that, there are two very simple things that all of us can do to make sure we have enough room for everybody. Um, The first one, and again, I just want you to know that I I understand this is going to be difficult for some of us. But the first one is when you come in, it would be really helpful if you didn't plop down on the very end of the row first thing. And again, I get it. A lot of us have a lot of coffee circulating through our stomachs, so we need to be able to make a very quick exit. I really do understand. (laughs) But when everybody does that, then the first song happens and everybody stands up and nobody can see that there are like tons of seats in the middle that aren't taken because everybody sat on the ends and stood up and so they can't see these seats. And so if you could try to sit toward the middle first thing, not on the end. And then uh, second, and this one's very understandable too, because we spent the last two years being told that we're supposed to stay six feet apart from each other. okay? But when you come and sit down, try to not put like 30 seats in between you and the next group. Um, that makes it very hard to maximize seating capacity because if we all put just five seats in between us and the next group, then just like that, we have lost 150 to 200 seats in the room, which makes it difficult to get everybody in. Again, I know those, those people beside you, they're very scary, but if you could just scoot and just leave one maximum space in between, then it'll help us accommodate more people. Make sense? Really simple. Don't sit on the ends and try to not leave a lot of spaces in between you and others. So today we are in the second week of our series uh, called Faker's. Breakers and Makers. And it's a series about conflict. We're using this language of fakers, breakers, and makers to frame the series because it's a really helpful way to understand what the Bible has to say about conflict resolution. Because when conflict happens, and it always does, doesn't it? Mm, Every single day. Until Jesus Christ Himself comes back, it will happen every single day. We have three basic options. Here's a little graphic that we'll use throughout the series. We can fake the peace, we can make the peace. We can break the peace, right? We'll be walking through this graphic uh, in a couple of weeks. So let's start out here with option number one. When conflict happens, and it always does, the first thing that we can do is we can fake the peace. This is the preferred option of the people pleasers, middle children, and Enneagram nines everywhere. You know somebody like this? Conflict, there's no conflict here. I promise. I can barely even feel this knife that's in my back. There's no conflict here. What are you talking about? There's no conflict. So this is what a lot of us like to do. We, we fake the peace. Uh, and then option two, when conflict happens, is we can, we can be people who break the peace. This is the preferred option of the aspiring alpha dogs and Enneagram 8s everywhere. You know, anybody know like this? They just come up to you, you know, out of, out of the blue on a day, and like, hey, man, I'm just in some conflict. Why don't you look at me like that? Huh, huh, huh? We have somebody to sort out. You're like, hey, man, I just said good morning. Yeah, but what did it mean, man? It meant good morning, psycho. That's what it meant. Go on. Pick a fight with somebody else. I got stuff to do today. I don't have time for you. And then option three, and you've all been around long enough to know that when you're presented with three options, the correct answer is always what? It's always option three, is we can make the peace. And this is the preferred option of nobody, at least nobody I've met. And so here's what we're going to do in this series. It's very complicated, so I need you to pay very careful attention right now to what I'm going to tell you. What we're going to do in this series is we're going to listen to what the Bible says about conflict resolution. And then we're going to do it. Do I need to repeat it? You got it? Yeah, it's not complicated, is it? It's not complicated. Though we like to pretend like it's complicated so we can pretend like we don't know how to do it. That's my favorite. Pray for your enemies. What does that mean? I don't know. It means pray for your enemies. But what does it mean in the Greek? In the Greek, it means pray for your enemies. That's what it means. <laughs> it's not complicated stuff, but it is hard. It is very hard. And our text today is a, a really good example of that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 5. We're in Matthew 5 last week. We'll continue. Matthew 5, it'll be on the screen as well. Verses 38 through 42. Very brief passage today, but it's a tough one. A good one, but a tough one. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. This is Jesus talking. He says, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the left to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt... Let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, you go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. So our text today comes right smack dab in the middle of Jesus' uh, most famous and longest recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount will actually be in the Sermon on the Mount for the first four weeks of the series because as it turns out, Jesus' most famous and longest recorded sermon has a whole lot of teaching in it about conflict resolution. And this is actually very consistent with what we see in Scripture in in general as a whole and the New Testament in particular. And you can make a case that conflict resolution is the most common theme in the entire Bible. Have you ever thought about that way? Conflict resolution, the most common theme in the entire Bible. Uh, the Bible starts out, Genesis 1 and 2, and things are good. They are conflict-free for the only time. And very quickly, what happens? Well, Adam and Eve, they eat the apple, and then Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. She kind of blames God, and then pretty soon, they're out of the garden, and Cain's killing Abel, and things escalate very quickly on the conflict front. And then from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, what we have is story after story about conflict. Our conflict with God, our conflict with each other, our conflict with our neighbors, our conflict with our enemies, our conflict with ourselves. And the gospel is the good news of God's stubborn commitment to resolve our conflict God's way instead of letting us resolve it our way. That's what the gospel is. All that to say so much is at stake, think about it, in how we handle conflict. Because either it testifies to the truth of the gospel of God's conflict resolution Or it tells a lie about it. Or, to put it a bit less ominously, not everything has to be ominous, you know. um, Conflict provides us with a very exciting and powerful opportunity to share the gospel. To live it out and embody it and show the world what the gospel of God's conflict resolution looks like. I know a lot of us get really freaked out about sharing our faith. But think about this. Every single day you have conflict, I promise. And so every single day you'll get an opportunity to show the world what the gospel of God's conflict resolution looks like. It's one of our most precious opportunities to share the gospel. All right, so that said, let's dig into our text a bit. Jesus starts by saying, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so where have these people who Jesus is talking to heard this? Well, from their Hebrew Bible, of course, we know it is the Old Testament. It is mentioned in three different Uh, verses slightly different ways, all from Moses. Exodus 21, verses 23 through 35 says, But if there is serious injury, then you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, verses 19 through 20, Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Must suffer the same injury. Deuteronomy nineteen twenty two. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And this has since come to be known by the Latin phrase lex talionis, which more or less means the law of retribution. And the basic idea is that justice requires equal retribution. So if somebody harms you, then justice requires that you harm them back, that you inflict equal harm in return. Because if you do more harm than they did to you, then you're sinning, right? Makes sense? But if you do less harm in return than what they did to you, then you are letting them get away with sin, neither of which is acceptable. And surely nothing in the whole world is more natural than our desire for justice, and more specifically, our desire for retributive justice, our desire to do to them what they did to us, our desire to take from them what they took from us. I remember when my oldest son, Wyatt, was about three years old. We were having church out in that field right over there in a tent because the auditorium was filled with Hurricane Harvey supplies. you you remember that? It was a really cool Sunday. It was a lot of fun. So we're out there, and all the kids are running around after service, and I'm talking with this uh, person, but I'm keeping an eye on all the kids. Some of you parents know this incredible point guard peripheral vision you develop as you, you have kids. You can be in a very deep conversation with someone, but you know where all 16 of the kids are. You know, they're over there, they're over there, they're just you got these eyes in the back of your head. It's the envy of point guards everywhere. So I'm in this conversation, I can see, though, that Wyatt is playing with his buddy over there on the side, uh, his buddy Link, whose last name may or may not be Whitmire. Can confirm nor deny they're both very rowdy boys, and so I'm keeping an eye on them because I, I know what could go down here. Sure enough, I'm in this conversation. Out of the corner of my eye, in my peripheral vision, I see Wyatt rear back and just pop Link right in the face. Bam! And my first thought is, oh, my gosh, I hope Link's parents did not see that. i got to run some interference for my man, Wyatt. Hey, James and Rachel, how's it going? So I'm about to make my way over there because I know what's going to go down. But before I can even get one step in the direction, Link returns fire. Slap right back to the face. Bam! And Wyatt, at this point, I'm trying to make my way over there, but I don't have time. Wyatt rears back again, he slaps Link again, bam, in the face, bam, bam, bam. And at this point, y'all, little Link Whitmire, the man turns into Floyd Mayweather, and he throws <laughs> the fastest combo I have ever seen in my entire life, bam, right in the face, hits Wyatt. At this point, you need to understand something. Wyatt is the oldest of our children, okay? He's the older brother, which means he's accustomed to throwing the punches. He is not very accustomed to taking them. Whereas Link is the youngest of four boys, which means this is not the toddler that you want to try to go blow to blow with, right? That man came out of the womb, ducking and diving, he would give Floyd a run for his money. All that to say, the point is that I can assure you, I can speak confidently for both the Fisher and may or may not be Whitmire households and let you know that we didn't sit our boys down one day and teach them the ethics of retributive justice, because we didn't have to because nothing comes more naturally for us than eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And yet here's Jesus, right, calling into question one of our most allegedly sacred rites of our deepest instincts. Jesus says, hey, I know that you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I know that you have been told that your desire for justice, for retribution is good and right and godly. I know that Moses told you that. But I'm going to need you to listen very closely to what I'm going to tell you because Moses answers to me. And what I'm going to tell you is do not resist an evil person. That's what the text said, right? Y'all want to check again? Red letters. Do not resist an evil person. That's what Jesus says. Anybody have some questions for Jesus at this point? <laughs> I, I got a few. You know, like, I mean, this sounds like the most ridiculous command I have ever heard in my entire life. Do not resist an evil person. How's that supposed to work? Won't evil and injustice just ruin the world if we don't stand up to evil people? It's just not realistic. That's the way we all feel about it. That's the way I feel about it. It's not realistic. And this brings us to a very basic but important principle of biblical interpretation that I have found very helpful over the years and that I think is particularly applicable here. Right, here's the principle. Jesus is more realistic than me. Right? Jesus is more realistic than me. I think we can all agree on this. Well, it's not very fun to agree with, but we're kind of caught here. And so whatever it is that Jesus is saying here, whatever it is that he is telling us to do, we can rest assured that it's realistic. Because Jesus is more realistic than you and me. So that said, that agreed upon, let's try to understand what Jesus is telling us. So Jesus acknowledges that there are evil people in the world. That's important. Jesus is not some, you know, doe-eyed, naive hippie who's like, oh, there's nobody's evil. He's like, no, there are evil people in the world. Jesus would know, right? He got killed by a lot of them. There are evil people in the world. Then he goes on to say, though, that rather than harming them back when they harm us in return, we should not resist them. But then he goes on to give five specific examples of what he's talking about, of what it looks like to not resist an evil person. And all five of these examples would have been situations that his listeners had literally experienced in their lives. Because, again, Jesus is very realistic. So, an <clears throat> example number one, Jesus says that when somebody slaps you on your right cheek, it's interesting that Jesus is this specific. We'll come back to this. If somebody slaps you on your right cheek, you offer up your left cheek for them to slap as well. Example number two, Jesus says that when somebody is suing you for your coat, suing you for your shirt, actually, and just, y'all, wasn't this a simpler time? People sued each other for shirts. Can you imagine that? Your Honor, I would like to sue this man for two polo shirts and some Timberland boots, maybe a Gucci sweater as well, (laughs) What he's done. That was back then. So when somebody's suing you for your shirt, you ought to just go ahead and give them your coat, too for a little bit of context in the ancient world they didn't have all these layers that we have now you know I'm gonna be, I got 16 layers on right now just in case the temperature changes one degree now they had two layers of clothing you had your shirt it was like a long shirt that you wore against your skin on your body and then you had a coat only two layers of clothing you had so if somebody's suing you for your shirt Jesus says just give it to him. and then Jesus says you know what you ought to also just throw in your coat and you only have two articles of clothing can somebody do the math for me on that I believe that would leave you wearing approximately, yeah, I think not two minus two equals zero. Jesus is saying you're supposed to get naked in the courtroom. Right? And I know we've got some very rigid biblical literalists here. So I expect you to follow this thing to the letter of the law. If you get sued, then you've got to get nude. That's what JC said. And I expect <laughs> you, you don't get to pick and choose. That's what he said. Red letters, baby. Red letters. In example three, we have a scenario where a Roman soldier tells you to carry his very heavy equipment uh, for a mile, which was actually his legal right. According to Roman law, uh, a soldier could compel a citizen to carry his pack for one mile, a law that was particularly despised when you realize that a Roman soldier in Israel is what? a Russian and Ukraine baby, an evil occupying enemy force. So this was not uh, the most popular law. And yet Jesus says, when a a soldier forces you to carry his pack for him one mile, you go ahead and you carry it for him a second mile. Next two options are a little less extreme because they're less about what to do when we're victimized and more about what to do when we're inconvenienced. Jesus says, look, when somebody asks you for something, do it. When someone has to borrow something from you, You give it. Now that I think about it, those aren't much easier, are they? No. And so on the one hand, Jesus' teaching here could not be more clear. Retributive justice is forbidden. Couldn't be more clear. But on the other hand, it does leave us with some very difficult questions, doesn't it? I think it does. Questions about dignity, justice, and violence. And so just to provide a very brief summary of the history of interpretation um, on this passage, for the first couple hundred years of church history, there appears to have been a very strong consensus that this text, and many others just like it, meant that Christians were never, ever allowed to kill. This meant that the early church was firmly against abortion, even though abortion was a very normal practice in the ancient world, a very normal practice. This meant that the early church was firmly against capital punishment, even though capital punishment was a very normal practice in the ancient world. And this also meant that the early church was very uncomfortable with the idea that Christians were allowed to kill, even in war. There's a great book uh, written on this a few years back, the title's pretty straightforward. The Early Church on Killing it puts together a bunch of documents from early Christians and just see what they had to say about killing. And so that was the consensus. But this consensus against killing, it begins to get more complicated in the third century where we start to see these arguments that suggest that there might be certain circumstances, namely self-defense or the defense of an innocent other in which Christians might in fact be allowed to kill. And this makes a lot of sense from a historical perspective because we've got to remember a couple of things. Number one, we've got to remember that uh, you know, in these early years of Christianity, who rules the world? You know who rules the world. Rome rules the world. The Roman Empire rules the world. And in the eyes of these early Christians, Rome had done something pretty bad. Do you remember what it was? They had killed Jesus Christ. Remember that? Big deal. And so the early Christians, they're not particularly fond of the Roman government. The early Christians did not like their government very much. Some things never change. And then they also thought that Jesus was coming back really soon. Have you ever noticed that when you read your New Testament? You can tell that these people think Jesus is coming back any day now. That's why some of that. But don't even worry about getting married. Jesus is coming back soon, right? You get some of that in Paul. Uh, They thought Jesus was coming back really, really soon. So they were not particularly concerned with making Rome great again. They don't care about Rome. Rome killed Jesus or fighting Rome's wars. They were unconcerned with that. Um, All that to say, the early church did not much consider itself responsible for the social order. Does that make sense? You can see that in the New Testament too. They're like, man, we're leaving here quick. The social order is evil. So we're trying to call people out of the social order and into God's family. That's all we care about. But then something really important doesn't happen. You know what it was? JC doesn't come back. At least I hope not. Or we are in trouble. Doesn't come back. And so as Jesus delays his return, right, these early Christians have to start thinking through things. Understandably and for good reasons, they start to feel a greater and greater responsibility for the social order. It's like if you're in a house and you think you're going to be there for a week, you don't care if your kids are drawn on the walls with Sharpies, whatever, man. But when you realize you're going to be there for a while, for the rest of your life, you better start taking care of that house. It's kind of what goes on with the early Christians. And that leads to this very deep and rich millennia-long conversation that the church has had about justice and violence and proper Christian responsibility for the world. And so here's the deal. Reasonable Christians are going to disagree on this. We just are. We have been disagreeing about it for literally thousands of years. And so you are not going to come up with some argument that nobody's ever heard of before that just sells it once and for all. I hate when modern people do that. We're so arrogant, aren't we? We're like, well, I know Christians have been dealing with this for a thousand years, but they haven't heard my argument yet. Yes, we have. It's been heard. It's not perfect. We've heard them all. This is a family tension that the church has to learn how to live with well. And so the absolute worst stupidest thing that we could ever do, but it's the thing we love to do, is waste all of our time arguing about these extreme fringe cases like what? There are two that always come up. Do you kill Hitler and do you kill the home intruder? Those are always the ones. That's what we always end up arguing about. We waste all of our time arguing about that instead of just doing what Jesus actually says to do. Because while the implications of what Jesus says in these verses are very ambiguous and reasonable people can disagree, absolutely. What Jesus says in these verses is absolutely crystal clear, isn't it? It is. And what Jesus says is retribution is forbidden, meaning payback is not a Christian practice. This one's not up for debate. Payback is not a Christian practice. But then even more importantly, Jesus isn't just forbidding payback, is he? He goes further than that. And he commands us to practice a very aggressive and creative form of kindness. Let's go back to that first example, right? Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, you offer up your left. See what Jesus is doing here. In order to do this, I'm going to need a a volunteer who will pretend to slap me in the face. Can I get a volunteer who will pretend to slap me in the face? No one will pretend to slap me in first service. There were so many hands going up that I was disturbed. Tony, come on up, my man. Tony First service, there was a guy, his hand went up before I even asked it, and he was much too eager to be using an example. This is my man, Tony. I know Tony. He helps out in our students. And so, Tony, um, are you right-handed? right-handed? Okay. Tony's right-handed, as most people throughout history have been right-handed. And so if a right-handed person, Tony, you're a right-handed person, you're going to slap me in my right cheek, how would you do it? You raise that hand and you do what? With your right hand, my right cheek. Yeah, right? Yeah. Backhanded slap, okay? Now, I won't call it what you and I probably called it growing up, Um <laughs> But it's not a nice thing. It was the same way in the ancient world, right? A backhanded slap, man, that was reserved for somebody who you wanted to severely insult, somebody who was not on your level. And so notice what Jesus is doing here. He says, hey, after somebody backhand slaps you on your right cheek, what do you do? You offer up your left cheek. Now, if you were to hit me with your right hand on my left cheek, what would it look like? It would be an open hand, right? And so notice what Jesus has done here. When someone hits you, Jesus says, hey, listen, you hit me, and I'm not going to hit you back, and I'll even let you hit me again, but you are not going to backhanded slap me again. You're not gonna insult me. You're not gonna look down on me. You can hit me, Tony, but you're gonna hit me like a man. You're gonna hit me like an equal. Isn't that good? Y'all get Tony here. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for not hitting me. And that's just one example of how what Jesus is teaching here. Okay, it's not some kind of like wimpy passivity. We just take it, take it, take it. No, 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 no. But rather, it's a very aggressive and creative form of kindness, wherein we meet conflict head on, toe to toe, face to face, eye to eye, but we renounce our right to payback because we have been called to embody God's kindness and not pursue our vengeance. Why? Because that's what God in Christ did with you. And that's what God and Christ did with me. That's why. Any of you familiar with the comedian Patton Oswald? He's been in a few movies. If you kids have seen Secret Life of Pets, he's the voice of the main dog. I forget the dog's name, but he's the voice of the main dog. Anyways, uh, he, uh, I guess it was two years ago. Yeah, around two years ago, he posted something mean and sarcastic on Twitter, which I know is really surprising to anybody on Twitter. And go figure, this this complete stranger returned with a very mean and sarcastic reply. Um, He told Patton Oswalt that he was glad that he had died in some movie that he had been in and that furthermore he was a, a very short man who didn't know how to shoot basketball seems like a very specific insult yes um I think Pat Oswald had been in one of those celebrity basketball games apparently this guy had seen him and so the general idea is he was like hey I saw you play basketball you look like Muggsy and you shoot like Shaq so yeah that's kind of what went down and so uh, he insults Patton Oswalt, and you know, Patton, he, he responds with another mean and sarcastic tweet in return. And then while he's ready to continue this game of insult tennis, you ever played insult tennis before? Just, just going back and forth with each other. It's very fun. He does something unexpected, and he goes and he looks at this guy's social media profile, this stranger who's insulted him. And he realizes that this dude is really, really sick. He'd been in a coma in the hospital for two weeks. He'd just gotten out of the hospital, and he had an enormous amount of medical debt as a result of it. And so at this point, Patton Oswald, he, he does something pretty courageous in my book. He, he puts down his insult tennis racket. That's hard to do when you're in the middle of a match. He creates a GoFundMe account for this guy, shares it with his you know, 3 million followers, asks all of them to contribute. And in 24 hours, he had raised over $30,000 For this anonymous stranger on Twitter who had just said that he was a wee little man with a broken jumper. (laughs) And this guy was so moved by it that, to put it biblically, he repented. Here's what he said. Here's what he posted in return. I want to thank everyone who came to my aid with generous outpourings and also to Patton Oswalt, without whom I would not be the recipient of so much love and support. I'm not a man who ever cries, but I had to wait to send this. And that's so beautiful. I love that. I've been waiting to share that story for like three years. It's so great. It's beautiful. It's a reminder of what can happen when we remind ourselves that Jesus is more realistic than me. And Jesus is more realistic than you. It's a beautiful story. And I'm tempted to pray now but I don't want to end with that story. It's a great story but I don't want to end with it. Because I don't want to leave you with the impression that everything always just goes your way when you do what Jesus told you to do, right? Because you know better than that. You know most of the time, it just insults you right back. They don't care. It doesn't always work this way. And so notice that while Jesus does tell us to renounce our right to payback and practice aggressive kindness, He does not promise us that it will always work. Did it work for Jesus? Remember what happened to Him? He got put up on that cross. didn't go so well for Him. We do not practice. Jesus did not promise that it would always work, nor that we should only do it when we know that it will work and cause our offenders to repent. All that to say, it is great when faithfulness works. But we are not just faithful when it works. We are faithful, period. You follow me? It is great when faithfulness works, and sometimes it does, because Jesus' way is very, very powerful. Forgiveness is powerful, and kindness is powerful, but we are not just faithful when it works. We're faithful, period. And faithfulness will win but not because we were so cunningly clever and like when we did and didn't do what Jesus said because we knew when it would and wouldn't work and cause our offenders to repent. No, 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 faithfulness will win because when you were the evil offending person, and you were and you still are sometimes, and when I was the evil offending person, God chose the cross instead of payback. And the cross, I have it on good authority, is gonna get the last word. Thanks be to God, amen? Amen, let's pray. Gracious God, we are grateful to be here today. We gather together as a church family, new friends, old friends, and we confess that we are grateful to exist for the breath in our lungs, but we are most of all thankful for Jesus the Messiah, that in Jesus you renounced your right to pay back, and you embraced us in forgiveness and reconciliation, and you have commanded us to do the same. That's very, very hard. God, because a lot of us in this room have been very, very wounded and more than once. And it can be confusing figuring out how to respond to that because we don't want evil and injustice to go unchecked. And yet we also, at some level, just have to agree that you know better than we do. And so while we do not let others trample upon us, we also renounce our right to payback. We find creative ways to be faithful and kind. So I know there are a lot of heavy burdens in the room this morning, man. A lot of people who have been wounded. A lot of people who've done some wounding. We pray that you would guide us as we try to better practice what Jesus told us to do, but not just what Jesus told us to do, what Jesus did with us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.